Welcome to the Supply Chain Pioneers Podcast, where we highlight industry leaders on the forefront of innovation and technology in planning, procurement, and logistics. Hosted by your supply chain pro to know, Ulf Venn. Hey, here's a quick information before the episode starts. It is a new year. It is a new me. I'm trying out a new format today, which is the Supply Chain Pioneers Newsflash. It's something that I really like to do because I want to do that together with my friend Mirko, who I worked together for a long, long time. Really appreciate his work and he has some great insights to share and I wanted to give him a platform for this as well. And yeah, I thought it might be a fun idea to have some of these episodes every once in a while. Please give me a feedback if you like it. Um, also give me a feedback if you don't like it and why. And yeah, have fun with the episode today. Supply Chain Pioneers is powered by Everstream Analytics. Everstream gives you the predictive insights and analytics to make your supply chain faster, smarter, safer and leaner. Go to everstream.ai to book your demo today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Supply Chain Pioneers. And actually, Happy New Year. This is the first episode of 2024, and I want to start with a banger and actually an update and a new format that I want to introduce. And for that, I have with me Mirko. Welcome, Mirko. Hi, Ulf. And Mirko, can you please quickly talk about your role and what you're doing for a living? Sure. So... I am heading up our intelligence solutions team, who is responsible for um, so monitoring supply chains around the world, uh, knowing what's going on and knowing and identifying potential risks that are very impactful for companies in many different industries, from semiconductors to automotive and pharmaceuticals. And so I know a lot about what's going on every day, and that's kind of my job that I do for a living. And because 2024 started quite tumultuous, I would say, right? We had the earthquake in Japan really kicking off the year. We went to the Houthis and the Red Sea, and now we had the elections in Taiwan only on Sunday. So there's a lot of things we can actually cover, and today's episode will be around these breaking news and everything that we can discuss around that. So I hope you enjoy and we directly jump in and talk a little bit about Taiwan. So maybe do you want to give a high level outline of what's happening on, in Taiwan? Sure. So Taiwan has basically elected a new president uh, last weekend so on Saturday. Uh, and at the same time, they had uh, parliamentary elections. So it's a little bit similar if you compare with France. You have uh, sort of the presidential uh, elections and then very, in a very short order, very short succession, you have the parliamentary elections um because basically then you know you, you will have maybe sometimes the same majority uh you know sort of a president and the party uh the same party that sort of win the elections and kind of gives this the whole system more stability uh what actually interestingly compared to france uh, happened in taiwan is that the president from one party got elected but then he get, didn't get the majority in the legislative sort of body in Taiwan. So that's quite an interesting uh, perspective. I mean, the, the big focus obviously in Taiwan was on the presidential election, not so much on the legislative ele election, because simply the president will kind of steer sort of the 
the policy debate, but also obviously define foreign policy, especially um, if you think about the whole constellation between you know China, the US, and Taiwan. So obviously there, there, there was a big focus on the presidential elections, but at the same time, we had the parliamentary elections. And there it seems to be, uh, you know, it seems to be kind of a, a check and balance situation where you could, uh, you have the opposing parties sort of winning the majority. So it's kind of not, still unclear, like who's going to really, uh, you know, be able to pass legislation in the end because nobody really has an absolute majority. Um, but, uh, you know, very interestingly, there will be some kind of uh, cooperation that is needed between the different parties to sort of pass legislation. So it's there won't be any dramatic shifts or any dramatic action that we can expect anytime soon. Mm. So we we hear out of the global news, right, that there's a lot of congratulations from the West on the outcome of the election, and then China seems to be more reserved. So is it fair to say that the outcome did favor the Taiwan as independent uh, fraction in comparison to the reuniting with China fraction? Yeah, that is definitely a, a fair assessment. Absolutely. Um, so there basically have been three candidates in the end that uh, the Taiwanese people have voted on. Um, and if you think about the political spectrum, you will basically have pro-independence on the left and then sort of uh, sort of pro-China on the, on the right. And the uh, party that is maybe most closely in favor of uh, an independent Taiwan has actually won the presidential election. And so that's, you know, a continuity uh, of the last eight years. We obviously have seen the DPP uh, party uh, sort, of, sort of electing the president or sort of putting the presidential candidate in the last eight years with Tsai Ing-wen and basically her, now her VP has won uh, the, the presidential election just on Saturday. So in, in that way, uh, it's a continuation of the last eight years. And the two other candidates, which are more moderate uh, or uh, more pro-China, uh, they have yeah, they have sort of not, not gained the majority in the presidential okay. election. So now the, the, the overarching question that everybody asks themselves is, when is China going to invade Taiwan? Can you give us a prediction? Unfortunately not. Um, but... If one can sort of, you know, just look at the couple of indicators, right? So I think one big indicator was this sort of, you know, setup between president and parliament. So I think that, you know, there's not going to be a radical, any radical policy changes. So in that, in that sense, it provides more stability to the status quo. So that I think that's in general for world peace and, you know, geopolit geopolitics, it's a, that, was, that was a good kind of outcome. Um, and then, you know, if you think, you know, now we do you know, veer into Chinese politics internally. Obviously, there is a lot of turmoil, a lot of uh, reshuffling within the, the the armed forces as well. So that's you know could be an indicator that also not all things are going well um, within uh, the Chinese uh, you know Communist Party, and then sort of those big those big organs that are obviously very important when you plan such a such an invasion. So so that's just a high level indication of the last uh, sort of uh, couple of weeks what, what we've seen. So I don't, I, I wouldn't say it's going to be likely in the next uh, couple of months or years. Yeah. I mean, that's good to hear, right? Still, if I would be a supply chain leader, I would definitely look into the situation continuously. Some of these, I would say more interesting scenarios are that there are a lot of Taiwanese, uh, 
suppliers you might have, right, that actually produce in China, or vice versa, that you have Chinese uh, Chinese ties into companies within Taiwan. It's heavily intertwined, and to figure that out as a first priority, I would say would be key for supply chain leaders, because these are the most easiest disruptive, right? And then you can look into potential mitigation measures, building up a second source, or maybe you say it's fine as it is because we believe Merco and nothing is going to change very quickly. But you have you that helps you build options, right? You have to prioritize because probably there is a lot of ties that you might have, but these I would look at first personally. So looking at industries maybe, can you share with us what you think or what based on your anal analysis are the key industries to watch out for? Yeah, I mean, maybe just coming back to your point, I think the, the key risk is actually, um, as you said, for, for Taiwanese companies also operating on, on the Chinese mainland, I think that's something that's often overlooked, right? You, you think about, okay, the whole sort of China-Taiwan Strait crisis, I wanna sort of see how my supply chain links into Taiwan. But at the same time, there's a lot of dependencies internally you know, with Chinese uh, Taiwanese, Taiwanese companies into China because there's a lot of a lot of investment uh, around Shanghai, the area around Shanghai, but also Chengdu a little bit in, inside China, um, in the in the sort of southwestern part. So we've seen this actually in the run up to the election. There was a, another candidate that in the end dropped out, which was the founder of uh, TSMC. And basically, TSMC is one of the key, obviously, semiconductor players in the world, but they also have a lot of dependencies. They have, they have some manufacturing plants in China, and they so there were some sort of legal audits into operations, and there were there were some question marks around whether they would have some licenses being revoked or being pulled into question. So that's obviously also a big risk is, is sort of, you know, what kind of levers does China have over uh, sort of legal entities of Taiwanese companies within China? Um, so that's something that yeah we've already seen that uh, that can be leveraged. Uh, in general, obviously the semiconductor industry. I mean, uh, that that's that's no surprise is is going to be a key one to watch. You see more and more semiconductor investments by ta Taiwanese companies outside of China. So we've analyzed the last uh, four years, and they have only been a fraction of the investments has actually gone into China for expansion of of current plans or new plans. So uh, Taiwanese companies such as TSMC. Uh, or UMC or others, they're looking to Japan, they're looking into Southeast Asia, they're looking to Europe, they're looking to the US. I mean, we've seen this in in, in Singapore, uh, there's there's a big um, big attraction. They're also looking into India potentially. Um, so there's a huge plan to diversify the semiconductor supply chains, which in the end is is a great thing, but a lot of the components and materials will still come from China. So, um, you know, not, not just, because the end, the end assembly is sort of happening in, in other places doesn't really mean that the supply chain and the sub-tier supply chain is going to diversify uh, equally. So that's something that's uh, a key risk definitely to watch. And other industries, for sure, chemicals. Taiwan is uh, really big in chemicals as well. And obviously other electronic components um, that, are, that are not necessarily chips or integrated circuits um, also you know, top of mind uh, when you think about the, the, the upcoming five to 10 years in diversification of supply chains. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've said that in the past, right? If you 
rely on rare metals that are only available in China for your microchips. It's going to be a, a tall order getting away from that completely. So it's also about, I would say, engineering and uh, R&D and investing into that to make sure that you can maybe find alternative substitute products that are more widely available. I think that's going to yeah. be a, also a key mission that might not be 100% supply chain related, but then in the end it is again, right? Uh, <laughs> without without anything to produce, it's going to be tough to, to manufacture. And in the end, that's what we want. Yeah, absolutely. I think the... I think you can have different levels of maturity in a sort of supply chain resiliency path and definitely changing sort of product features and you know substitutability of, of, of certain key key components so that you're not as dependent on one specific part is definitely a, you know, a, a great indicator of a high level of maturity. Yeah. So let's face it, anything else that I have not asked you around Taiwan that you still really want to share with everybody? Um, yeah, maybe what we can expect, right? In terms yeah, of exactly. like, yeah, good. Know, reactions from China or from the US. Uh, I think there's definitely going to be maybe more of the same. I think there's a couple of uh, key dates in the next six months to look out for obviously the inauguration day, you know, where we could in the past or the first sort of foreign visit uh, by the Taiwanese president, where that's going to go uh, to sort of see for potential dates of disruption in the future. Uh, the last uh, three or four, uh, you know, major Taiwan Strait crisis events, um, where we've seen a lot of military drills, a lot of uh, military action, whether that's, you know, airplanes flying into um, sort of Taiwanese territory or, you know, naval, uh, Chinese naval ships sort of um, controlling the area. That has typically been while uh, either U.S. Uh, sort of uh, politicians have visited China, uh, have visited Taiwan, or Taiwanese, the Taiwanese president has gone abroad and stopped in the U.S. So typically during these key dates, we can expect maybe more of those military exercises and potential disruption to shipping or or uh, sort of you know uh, flight uh, flight uh, operations in the in the area. Yeah. So. From a potential impact, uh, let's say global impact indicator, we say is that some is the outcome of the Taiwan situation? Is it going to be a major impact to supply chains globally? Is it a medium impact or is it a considerable low impact? That's I think it's maybe an obvious question, but I, I still think we should talk about the impact that situation uh, could have to global supply chains. Yeah, I mean. If anything would happen was was to happen to Taiwan, that would be, I think, the Red Sea crisis times a hundred. Yeah, uh, I think uh, it's it's difficult to kind of measure it until it really happens. Um, but it's definitely it's you know, Taiwan is no Ukraine. Let's put it that way. Uh, I think obviously Ukraine equally important for for the world, but in terms of the value of the products and the complexity of the products it's not it's not sunflower oil and wheat mm -hmm. it's it's really uh you know something that you cannot at all substitute um, so that the economic losses will be tremendous and the economic impact and uh, so yeah. i would actually go so far that it's going to be the red sea crisis times a million 
personally. So, yeah. but we can talk about this in a second because maybe we have different opinions on that. So let's talk about the, the Red Sea crisis that is going on right now. Maybe again, give us a short outline. Yeah, so the Red Sea crisis, I mean, essentially it's, um, it's a, uh, a geopolitical, if you compare maybe with the Panama Canal, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the Panama Canal for the last uh, 12 months. Uh, which is a, a major shipping channel that is currently being impacted by climate change, you know, droughts, lack of rainfall. So there's less ship traffic through the Panama Canal right now, connecting the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. And equally important is the Suez Canal, maybe even more important. I think there's about 20% of, of global cargo going through the Suez Canal, whereas only 5% through the Panama Canal. And so the Suez Canal's extremely important for European supply chains, anything coming out of Asia into Europe, but then also going further to the to the US East Coast. Um, it's it's so important that, you know, it kind of saves a lot of time, basically, right? Otherwise, you have to go around Africa uh, to Europe and then, you know, all of the, basically, there's just less capacity in the market if ships have to stay, you know, uh, on, on, on the run, on the road for longer. And the Red Sea is basically the entry point into the Suez Canal or the sort of outgoing point if you're coming out of Europe. And so that sort of is currently under attack by, you know, through missiles and, and sort of drone attacks um, by the Houthis, who are a um, sort of rebellious group in, in Yemen that is fighting the current government. And there's different interests at play. You know, I won't go into details, otherwise we can just uh, do a session about this. But basically, there have been ship attacks way more than usual. So about you know 150 200% increase over what is normal and that has sort of started with the Israel Hamas war and uh, so we've seen an increased number of ship attacks uh, on initially Israel linked ships but now kind of um, really uh, impacting all of the ships and so there's a lot of major container carriers that have announced they will not be using this sort of uh, shortcut but they would sail around of, uh, the the horn of Africa or the Cape of Good Hope. And so it has currently a, a sort of major impact because a lot of things are being delayed. If you're waiting for a couple of containers uh, and your ship is you know, not going through the, to the, to the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, then basically you're waiting currently for your containers to arrive on, on a ship into ports in Rotterdam or Antwerp or even on the US East Coast. So that's kind of the situation that's going on. Right now, it's not a full-scale blockade of the Suez Canal, what we've seen two years ago, three years ago, when there was the ever given that that was grounded. But basically, container traffic is you know, significantly reduced through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea. So there's a lot of ships that are not going through it. Some are. A lot of them are not. And so, yeah, there's a kind of supply chains are getting longer, uh, again, by two to three weeks at the mm -hmm. moment. I I find it... As a, as a general theme, I find it extremely interesting that you see, because you see in cyber uh, warfare more and more that supply chain companies are a target of a cyber blockades, right? They want to target these kinds of logistics companies and supply chain companies in order to create a problem with the general infrastructures for companies to produce, which is interesting to see because it, it just shows okay you can hurt economies with uh blocking their supply chain and that the houthis in a more i would call it offline way went into the same route is for me interesting to see it just shows 
the importance of supply chain globally is for me personally, right? That it it rose it rose in fame through COVID, and now we see that it also rose in importance for stakeholders that might want to look look at malicious acts right towards economies or societies yeah yeah, yeah i mean if, if we're on that note i mean i think it's if you're generally interested in supply chains or just sort of starting to to have an interest in supply chains i mean i think there is not a a week that goes by where i'm amazed to sort of see how supply chains run are linked to specific parts of the world uh, that you wouldn't imagine sort of having an impact on because everything is so interconnected, right? So a couple of things that you know, have recently blown my mind was obviously Ukraine. I mean, we know wheat, sunflower, but Ukraine was responsible. There were two plants that were responsible for 50 to 60% of neon gas that is used in the semiconductor industry. And that basically, and they were very close to the Russian border. And so basically these plants from to, you know day one, they kind of went out of service. And and so that's basically fifty percent of supply that's out of the market, right? And and I don't think in terms of risk assessment anyone has really done that, right? So it's so like everybody knew about that sort of sort of uh, sub tier risk. So that was a, definitely an eye opener. But then you you think about other risks like Sudan, right? I mean the the civil war that's currently going on in Sudan, and you think how Sudan may be connected to supply chains, you would probably think maybe a little bit less in terms of the econ- economic structure. But there is a key ingredient that goes into everything from marshmallows to Coke that is coming out of Sudan, majority, I think 80, 90%, that's gum Arabic, which is, uh, you know, sort of uh, sort of harvested from the acacia tree and basically only grows in, in a couple of, you know, countries in, in the Sahel uh, area, right, the Sahel Desert, including Sudan, majority. And so if you think of these examples, it, it's really, I think, supply chain is, is just... You have to think globally because everything can be interconnected and, and the Red Sea, as you said, is, is no different. Yeah. So we now know that it's it it's hurting enough that uh, countries like uh, the US and the UK started to intervene. And I think also the European Union is looking into maybe sending some forces over there. Can you anything to share on that front? Yeah, so what we're currently seeing is um, warships being deployed. So a lot of the attacks right now, they're continuing, similar to what we've seen in November and December. But basically, there are, a lot of the missiles and drone attacks are being intercepted by warships. Um, some uh, sort of container ships also get sort of uh, escort passage uh, with sort of military escorts, military ships. So we're seeing that especially for, um, for example, some of the big container lines, if their uh, ships are sort of uh, sort of sailing under the U.S. flag, for example, uh, they would get uh, sort of extra um, extra security. But basically, the situation is very unchanged. You have you just have more military presence in the area that is sort of intercepting the drones, so they don't have as much impact. There's still a huge number of ships that actually go through it. If you think about oil tankers, chemical tankers. Uh, even sort of other cargo ship, bulk carriers, uh, car carriers. So they're also going through it. It's just really the the global container carriers that have been uh, hit maybe the most and then have sort of said, you know, globally or, you know, uh, that, that they will kind of not use that that area anymore, but there's still container ships also going through that area. And, and so essentially the impact is just less. There's less ships that are being hit because of these interceptions, but uh, the threat is still there. And um, 
there's, I think, not a, a feasible way of military ships to accompany all of the commercial ships that are going through the through the uh, to the Red Sea and the Swiss Canal. So it's really unclear actually what needs to change uh, for you know all of the global container carriers to kind of go back to the, using the Suez Canal, because obviously in terms of you know once you now sort of started to reroute, all of the schedules are being updated, and sort of you know I think everything is factored in, costs are increasing. And so if in the end you pay more, but then the ship that your co container is on arrives two weeks earlier, but you paid like double the price. Uh, I think right now, I think global schedules are kind of probably aligning more on the, you know, sailing around the Cape of Good Horn. And it's really unclear what needs to happen from a security perspective for them to actually go back on a, on a ad hoc basis. Maersk has actually done it. And then they have sort of been attacked once more uh, around the start of the year. And then immediately kind of, have said, okay, we will, you know, stay with uh, the longer route for now. So, uh, if you're really, you know, and also worried about your reputation and your sort of, um, you know, how you're being perceived in the world as being responsible, I think nobody wants to kind of change, uh, change tune and change sort of the stance every day. Mm -hmm. So before we go into impact, maybe also, and because you already highlighted it, I think that's going to be a short answer. Uh, how is the situation going to develop in the next six months? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think right now, you know, as I said, I think the, the the global container or global vessel schedules are being adapted and sort of are, are uh, you know, it, it's more likely than not. I would say that in the next three months, we won't see any changes. That that most of the carriers will continue yeah. to go around the because basically it, it gives them more flexibility. It gives them more, uh, it may, they can still use the Suez Canal and then have their ships in port earlier, but to sort of plan for the longer round, and then maybe if something good happens, then they can, can go back. But basically right now, a lot of the container carriers, they're yeah, surcharging, they are, are their sort of stock prices are also increasing. So there is a certain you know economic benefit right now um, that hasn't been there before, so in a, in a way, it's it's not bad actually for the shipping industry if you think about the shipping players uh, and not the yeah. customers. No, and also they have, because of COVID they built up massive overcapacities, mm -hmm. and now is a good situation to maybe use that overcapacity. So actually, I think for them, from a shipping line perspective, it comes at the right time, and also helps them to make a little bit of more money that before it looked kind of dire anyway. Mm -hmm. So we might help this part of the economy. And then for the others, frankly, I just personally don't think it's such a big deal because in the end, it's going to be, what, eight days more? So you carry for some products eight days more of inventory for a while, which, okay, it is what it is, right? You can't avoid it. You, you pay a little bit more, but I think actually over time that will pan out because there's going to be competition is starting there as well. And then in the end prices will drop to a certain extent again. Um, and you just, you will have obviously, right? For those that are that were shipped and then now there's a delay and the first ones that go around, it's, it's going to yeah. be a problem. And maybe some companies will face a, a production outage because of that. If they're good, it's, probably not. This is what we're seeing, airport. right? I mean, I yeah. think it's it's going to be, I think Tesla announced last Friday, Volvo, um, I think IKEA has already previously announced that. So um, not a 
big surprise. I think IKEA, a lot of bulky yeah. products. Uh, obviously, you know, if if there's a two week delay, uh, they're not you know keeping all that inventory of of uh, of uh, you know cupboards and and and, and tables and, and so on. But at the same time, also low cost, right? So there, there's there was no incentive to kind of move to air freight or or, or whatnot. It's I think it's more surprising. I don't know. I would be interested. What do you think about uh, Tesla and especially Tesla, right? Maybe, maybe there's some uh, batteries, maybe some electronic components or uh, EV components that are difficult to replace. Maybe also not easy to ship uh, or to just you know use use air cargo instead. But I don't think we will see that much more. I think you know. Other companies will just be adjusting their production schedules, maybe slowing down production a little bit. There's going to be a week of two or of of some sort of uh, you know short term work or short short uh, you know fur furloughs or whatever. But I think um, we were not going to see sort of production stoppages uh, in infinitively. I think it's just an adjustment period until everybody factors in that you know Shanghai to Rotterdam is now a sort of uh, 40 days again instead of you know, 28. Yeah. Um... With Tesla, I think there are several reasons for that, maybe. First reason can be very simple. The plant is only online for a couple of uh, months to a year by now, I think. And maybe the supply chain is still trying to get a foot around, uh, trying to get a hold on the entire situation anyway on a daily basis, right? I mean, building up a new plant yeah. and really oiling the machine that can take some time. So maybe it's just because they are on the day-to-day, -day, it's already stressful. This deviation just didn't give them enough leeway to really act on this situation as fast as they should have. But then also, I, I do believe the demand for electric vehicle in, in Europe dropped quite significantly recently. So it could also be that that is a welcomed excuse, excuse. to just put... Yep things Absolutely. on um, short-term uh, short labor, right? And get some government funding. Yeah. There's a lot of different reasons for that. It can also just be a mistake. Can there's, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's you a have surprise wonder, and not like, a surprise. What is, the, what is the advantage of actually saying that it's the Red Sea crisis? You know, I think there's definitely some, some other motivations yeah. at play because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it, I mean, if you analyze it quite openly, I think the entire automotive, I mean, there's no reason why one would be more affected than another um, because the truth is everybody's using this route, you know, everybody's using it. So yeah. maybe that just means that they have less inventory or yeah, just less organized at the moment. Um, or it's just because they are the only ones going fully electric, right? That it's really the battery. We, we really don't know, right? There are so many different reasons why that can be, but I, I also think maybe it's just carry, uh, trying to carry as minimal inventory as possible on a very long route. There are so many different options, but uh, there are some so, uh, some examples here on what we can, what could be the reason. Uh, maybe somebody from Tesla is actually, if you want to, you can reach out to me and we can talk about this. That would be super interesting on Supply Chain Pioneers as a podcast. Um, good. So... I want to talk a little bit about the impact and I already, I start, okay. Because I already said, I think this situation is not super dire personally, because in the end, if you adjust your SNOP planning, if you add eight, eight to maybe two weeks more, it's bad for your inventory and it's, it's not good on your financial report and it impacts quite a bit, but you can, 
I mean, if you really want to, you can keep the operation running quite smoothly, but it needs a three-week transition period, essentially, right? So it's an it's a mitigatable impact that might involve some money, but it's kind of doable if you if you scramble a little bit in comparison to Taiwan, where I think just could mean the end for a lot of products globally. Yeah. And yeah. So that's my take. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think it's in, in no way comparable. I think the, the two comparisons I've seen is one, like how does it compare to the Suez Canal, like the total blockades when the Evergreen uh, sort of you know ran aground and how does it compare mm -hmm. to COVID? Yeah. So on the first comparison, I would say the... The, the ever like the ever given grounding was definitely more impactful because it was at the time that supply chains were already disrupted and sort of you know there was uh, you know container shortages there were semiconductor I mean basically supply chains were in upheaval uh, mode already uh, early 2021 right a year into the pandemic so the material shortages the displaced equipment I mean everything was was going off the rails a lot of congestion going on and uh, in, in different parts of the world so so that certainly didn't didn't help it was at a time of huge demand uh and also the uncertainty right i think the, everybody waited for a long time before they kind of said we're going to take the long route because obviously you could not really imagine that it would like a ship would stay grounded for six days you know maybe you know at worst maybe two days but you know everybody was waiting so basically container shipping or in general shipping got to a complete standstill for like six days because only probably like 10% of, of the ships uh, that were supposed to go through the Swiss Canal were actually then really actively taking the decision to reroute. Everybody else was waiting. So in that sense, it really kind of, everybody lost you know, six days and then you add all the congestion later on. So I think definitely much more impactful at the time. COVID, you know, uncomparable. Uh, uncomparable because COVID is obviously, right now it's really only affecting a certain passage, right? You just add a number of days but in terms of the uncertainty, now that everybody moved to around around the Africa road, there's no more uncertainty. You just know what the worst case is, right? With COVID, obviously, you know, there's lockdowns and there's, you know, shipment restrictions. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty, but um, yeah. right now, you know, there's no more uncertainty, actually. Yeah, absolutely correct. That's perfect. So let's go to my last point, maybe. Because we now have the two major crises that we, one we potentially see, and then also one that is going on right now. So maybe let's have a quick review of one that already happened and started the year, which is an earthquake in Japan. I think everybody, we don't need a big summary because it's an earthquake happening in Japan. But uh, can you share maybe a little bit on the implications of the earthquake and what, what were the aftermath and maybe what is still going on on repairs right now yeah so it's definitely so the impact was definitely maybe less less feared than expected i don't know what would have been expected but i guess everybody was thinking about 2011 um there was definitely tsunami waves but not, not to the extent uh you know that that we've seen in 2011 right so most of the impacts that uh, we're seeing were, you know, definitely on on the factory side. They were obviously logistically speaking, in the majorly affected area, in in Western Japan, there are you know, still roads that that are closed uh, because of damages, and so there's you know transportation challenges. Um, 
And then there's still a lot of repairs going on at factories. So for example, if you take Murata, you know, a key sort of electric component manufacturer that I think over 11 plants in Western Japan. And so, uh, you know, until you sort of make sure that all your equipment is, 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 in, is in good health, right? If you have a huge plant that can take a couple of days. So a lot of their plants actually came back online gradually from January 3rd, January 4th, January 5th. Um, but there's still a few plans, actually, uh, about 20% are still out right now. So, you know, depending on, you know, how good they can, you know, especially these bigger players, they can sort of shift production to other plans that are up and running already. And how big the demand is right now, I think still it could, you know, right now it's probably a better time than had this happened in 2021 when there was actually another Japan Japanese earthquake that then sort of added to this semiconductor shortage at the time and sort of shortage of multiple different components so in that sense it's 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 not too bad but it's it was still very impactful and there's still a lot of suppliers that are reeling from it um so um yeah we shouldn't really be underestimating this but at the same time right now the 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 level of orders is is, is definitely not at, at the same as we've seen it in 2020 and 2021 good i hope that's some good news for supply chain leaders out there um, still something to monitor, right? Especially if one of your active suppliers has uh, feedback that is affected. There could be for some, some surprises out of the sub-tiers, right? Some ripple effects that often takes six to eight weeks until you hear about this. So we're not there yet. We're not out of the woods yet, but maybe we will know more very soon. And obviously, if you have sub-tier visibility, you probably already know more. Mirko. That's it for today. First of all, thank you so much. Uh, super insightful. And uh, would you be up to do that again if we have like several crises again that we can uh, discuss together? Will you anytime off? Ah, forcing your hand a little bit here. It's great. Okay, Mirko, thank you so much. And to all listeners, I want to say bye-bye. Thank you. This was Supply Chain Pioneers. Thanks for watching, listening, or however you are enjoying this podcast. You can find Supply Chain Pioneers on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all other major podcast players, as well as on YouTube at Ulf Talk Supply Chain. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment. See you next time.